Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Sometimes people are just tearing down stuff because it seems cool to tear down stuff. There wasn't like a history PhD there being like, okay, everybody. Yes, Ulysses S. Grant was key to storming Atlanta, but he owned a slave. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. Uh, we wanted to talk about some of the, the raging controversies over, over names and symbolism and, and things like that. This sort of started with questions about Confederate uh, commemorations of various kinds, I, I mean, of which to me, the most obviously notable are statues of Jefferson Davis and, and others in the uh, Statuary Hall at the Capitol, and then the name of the Confederates on uh, military bases. I, I assume that none of the three of us uh, here want to stand up for the importance of Fort Hood and, and Fort Bragg and for the idea that Mississippi should regard Jefferson Davis as one of their most eminent citizens. But I don't know, give you a chance to weigh in. Yeah, it, it seems to me that what we're, this is another case in which we're discussing something that's tangential to the thing that we perhaps should be discussing. But this is way easier. Like it's way easier to have a debate about whether or not Jefferson Davis was good at anything. He was not. Or whether or not certain uh, Confederate luminaries were actually all that luminous. They were not. Or whether Nathan Bedford Forrest bust should be in the Tennessee State House, which he was placed in in 1978. It shouldn't. But this is a discussion that it's it's far easier to have this debate and to make it about like you want to take down monuments to Thomas Jefferson than why were these standing for such a long time in the first place? And what do statues or these memorials, what do they actually mean? Right. I mean, there's also the, there's something here of kind of fighting the last war or like there's a, there's a sense, I mean, nothing about the like murder of George Floyd necessarily like led directly to and therefore confederate statuary is bad right i think some of what's happening here is that this is kind of a reminder not only of like all of the unfinished work just generally of like all of our failed previous reckonings with race but more specifically the last time we really had a national reckoning on whether whether black american progress had really had proceeded fully enough was in the wake of the Charlottesville protests in 2017, which were about Confederate monuments. And so I think that both in terms of like local activism, there was already groundwork that had been laid. Some local office holders who had already kind of been won over to the cause, but hadn't necessarily wanted to spend political capital once it fell off the radar, now realizing that this is a fairly easy thing for them to do. And of course, it's it is, as you said, Jane, it's easier to point to the symbols than it is to like, I don't know, it, it, look at harder cases in which Black Americans have been systematically marginalized in the American story. And, you know, it's easier to talk about Confederate monuments than it is to think about some of the intellectual work being done by the 1619 Project or kind of core, core ideas to liberal America, as well as to, you know, the, the particular regional politics of the South. And I think we're getting a little bit of that with increasing attention to people who were not Confederates, but who nonetheless like were slave owners or slave traders, or who like Woodrow Wilson, for example, whose name is no longer going to be on the, you know, School of Public Affairs at Princeton, were like, notably racist figures who were objectively not good for civil rights. Right. And that is, that's getting to some of the, you know, 
some of the harder conversations here just in the symbolism space, but it's still like, it is so much easier to talk about what something is called than to talk about you know, what benefits it is systematically conferring upon certain people and denying other people. That is why I, I do sort of want to talk about the Confederate commemoration, uh, because I think it occupies a sort of distinct space, which is that public monuments don't do anything, right? Like, they are just symbolism. So, Genuinely, the most important question to ask about the display of state statues in the U.S. Capitol is what does it convey symbolically? Societies need symbolism, and that is just a place. It is a public place in which the Congress has said each state shall send us statues of two people whom it wants to commemorate. And obviously, it's not the most important thing in the world, right? Like, we got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act done without getting rid of the Jefferson Davis statue. And that made a huge difference in the lives of millions of people. But also, uh, unlike the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs or former Woodrow Wilson School, Statuary Hall doesn't do anything, right? So the most important question to ask about it really is, like, do these symbols make sense? And what the selection of statues there from the Southern states said, like what it symbolized was that African-American Southerners are not members of the political community, right? Both by who was present, people like Jefferson Davis, and by who was absent, right? Like Martin Luther King is not considered one of the most distinguished Georgians, according to that display, when by any objective measure he is. This is just a very large share of the Southern population, right? And they, they didn't have any statues commemorating Black Southerners, and they had many statues commemorating Southern rebels. And same thing with military bases, right? Like, I don't know, like these bases are named after people, right? Like a whole bunch of American military bases are named after a whole bunch of people. Um, the purpose of that, like it's not a fundraising thing. It's for the military to say, like, what are we all about? And what they had been saying is that the Confederate military tradition is part of the American military tradition. And that is, I think, it's like not the most important thing in the world, but it is a like morally and factually erroneous statement. Like, those people are rebels who fought for a bad cause for political reasons. History was rewritten to say, like, eh, it was all fine. We had a breakdown of compromise. And, like, now there is a push, I think, rightly, to go back to a sort of 1870s understanding of what was going on there, which is that, like, those people were rebels and traitors, and they are bad. And, you know, that to me is... It's true that it's an easier conversation than, like, what do we say about George Washington? But, like, precisely because it's easy, like, I think it's worth having and also worth asking, like, why does Donald Trump, like, cling so tightly to Fort Bragg? Like, what does he care? Right. I keep joking, which is not really a joke, that this, I would think that if I'm Ted Cruz, I'm like, evil Democrats who enslaved Black people. There are m monuments to them across the South, but we have to, you know, if we're going to take on the purported innate racism of the Democratic Party, we should rip it out root and branch by removing those memorials. And I'm like, that is a political play that would work to me. But it is not the one that, that is happening now. And I think it's worthwhile having a conversation briefly about what these memorials and what these monuments were intended to be. Because I think there are a number, if you live in any number of Southern states, but also a host of states that were never part of the Confederacy. For example, there are Confederate memorials in Arizona, uh, which was not a part of the conversation during the Civil War. And so there are memorials in many towns in the South to war dead that are honoring the specific people who went and fought and died for the Confederacy. And then there are the memorials or the monuments to kind of the idea of the Confederacy itself or to the claims of the Confederacy or to, you know, the concept of the lost cause itself. And I think that it's important to recognize that those are, that to me is a difference here because I think that there is, 
a case to be made for uh, for having a memorial in a town that lost 50 people uh, who went and fought the con- for the Confederacy and died at Antietam or died at any number of battles that took place across the United States. But then there are the memorials that were put up in 1934, basically as part as during a siege of terror that was taking place aimed at black Americans um, following the disintegration of Reconstruction and the inculcation of Jim Crow, you know, the efforts made to reconstruct the Confederacy are such an important part of why these monuments were put in place. And even monuments that were meant to... There's a monument at Harper's Ferry to a man named um, Hayward Shepard. Uh, and it's a monument that was put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 19... Which gives away the timing. And Hayward Shepard was a man who was killed, a um, according to this monument, a industrious and respected colored freeman who was killed during John Brown's attempted raid, which John Brown was do- was doing as an effort to start a slave revolt to of ultimately end slavery in the United States. And the monument was put there, as it says, to exemplify the character and faithfulness of thousands of Negroes who, under many temptations through subsequent years of war, so conducted themselves that no stain was left upon the record, which is a peculiar heritage of the American people and an everlasting tribute in to the best in both races. Essentially, a statue to the good ones. And in response, the NAACP put up its own statue uh, that was written by W.E.B. Du Bois, essentially, like to honoring the Harper's Ferry Raid and John Brown's efforts to end slavery in the United States. But these monuments themselves became a part of the effort to rewrite history. They were not just reflective of this town that lost so many young men to this war, but to an idea of what the war was about or an idea of what the Confederacy about that was false. Right. I I think that it can be difficult uh, both for just kind of I think curricular reasons of like this story that people get taught of American history in school kind of gives massively short shift to reconstruction for like both, I think, ideological reasons and just it's easier to think of the end of a war as the end of a chapter in history and then kind of move forward. So it's hard to grok this as something other than the kind of slow march toward progress that we're taught happens toward equality in American history. But Essentially, what we have here is the result of like, first, the decision at the end of Reconstruction by the federal government to kind of abandon a racial justice project in the South and to instead allow the white elites of the South who had been the drivers of the Confederacy fully back into the bosom of the United States as, you know, as full and equal citizens at the expense of the black Southerners in in those states who they had been trying to uplift. And then subsequently to that, you have wave after wave of effort to continue to rehabilitate the Confederacy, which I, you know, I think that there are probably points at which like, the senators who voted to allow Confederate uh, former Confederates to be seated in Congress, the members of Congress who voted to withdraw federal troops, you know, who who approved the withdrawing of federal troops. There's probably a point at which those people would have said, no, 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 we're not going to have statues in the Capitol that commemorate these people. We just said that we shouldn't be spending federal, using federal resources to like keep them down. But once that decision was made that white Southerners counted as Americans and black Southerners were like not as central to that equation, it was something of an in for a penny and for a pound situation. It was more convenient for the North to forget than it was to kind of rein in the people who they'd already said, well, okay, you know, you're you're back now. It's done. You're cool. I, th- I think that's right. You know, and, and, and you know, so on, on that level, like, I do think that precisely because, as Jane was saying, like, this was such a deliberate project on the one hand, it's very important, I, I do think, to, like, go back and to some extent undo it in a deliberate way then there's this kind of other question which has been hanging out there ever since which is should there be a kind of general 
reevaluating of everyone in American history through a racial justice lens. And you could you could take it on, on a few different levels, right? So like when, when Yale had a dispute about Calhoun College, they put out like a very learned treatise about, you know, like how they're thinking about these things. And the thing they ultimately said was that like John Calhoun wasn't just a guy who had racist views or did racist things, but that if you ask like, why is he famous? Right? Like the thing that he is famous for is his being the antebellum champion of Southern white supremacy. Like that is what his political legacy is. Like any member of Congress, he did a bunch of stuff, but like, that's just like, that's what he's famous for. Like Daniel Webster was the New England guy. John Calhoun was the Southern guy and Henry Clay was the Midwestern compromise guy. And like, that's how we summarize it all. So if you're celebrating Calhoun, you are celebrating that Calhoun legacy, right? So, okay, right. But then that like naturally starts to slip its bounds into questions like Thomas Jefferson, who I think if you ask a normal American, like why is Thomas Jefferson famous? And it's like, well, he was the lead author of the Declaration of Independence. He was an early president. Um, What's on his, his gravestone famously is like, he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. He was the author of the Statute of Religious Liberty and he was the founder of the University of Virginia. Like that's what he wanted to be known for. But he was also objectively the John Calhoun of his era like the leading politician of the American South at a time when the American South was dominated by a Southern plantation owner class. And, you know, when you look at the historical record on Jefferson, he was like kind of a little bit of a slavery skeptic for a white Southern plantation owner, but he was still very much a white Southern plantation owner and a champion of Southern political interests. And we now have, thanks to uh, the book and the musical, um, this like, you know, neo-Hamiltonian view of American history in which Jefferson is like the bad guy of his era. But then that pushes back to George Washington, who was also a Southern plantation owner, slave owner, super rich, you know, exploiter of enslaved people's labor, but was actually in the opposite political faction who did um, at the end of his life, many mission of his slaves was not really a champion of Southern sectional political interests as a political figure. He was closer to at least for my gathering from, from Ron Turner's biography is he was more like a guy who felt that this was wrong, morally speaking, but just enjoyed being rich. You know, and so like when he died, he freed his slaves because he was not personally giving anything up. And he was like aware that this was not the right thing to do. Um, And clearly the reason we commemorate George Washington is that he was the first president and the military leader of the revolution. Like it's not, it's not because he was a slave owner, but he really was like, it's, it's quite, you know, bad morally what he did in his, in his life. And, and that's a tough one. Like, that's a hard thing. Like, to ask America to give up on George Washington is it, a lot. It's, it's also interesting, though, because I think that one of the challenges here is that a monument doesn't have context. A monument is just like, here is a very large image of this person whom we are honoring with that mo- with that monument. Not everyone gets a monument. I, I regret um, there is not a monument to a monument to my personal founding favorite founding father, Governor Morris, who was radically anti-slavery and also kind of a player in an interesting and fun way and uh, per- died because he performed surgery on his own penis. How can you not put up a monument to that? But you know, this is an era of making decisions about who gets honored and with what. And I think it's important to know that you know, sometimes I, I I I tweeted about it earlier, but I've seen the argument that you know, well, they were operating in a different. The founding fathers were operating in a different context. They don't have. I'll, I'll quote here from a piece I found earlier: the benefit of the acquired knowledge and evolving morality of the past two centuries. But clearly, they were having these conversations about the morality and the legality of slavery. Thomas Jefferson was famously 
deeply passionate about this subject while also having sex with slaves and slaves that he that were forced at young ages to negotiate with him to keep possession of their own children. And so I think it's worthwhile. I know this is complicated and I know that this is challenging, but I, I think that Matt, to your point that we're not honoring Thomas Jefferson because he had sex with Sally Hemings and a person he owned. We're honoring Thomas Jefferson for the actions that he performed on behalf of, in our view, this country and the questions and decisions that he he raised and that we are still trying to answer and trying to put into greater context. I'm going to close the window as there are like 40 cops outside my window. I just want to clarify that if you uh, want to find some commemoration of Governor Morris, St. Anne's Episcopal Cemetery in the Bronx is where his uh, his final resting place is. Hell yes. There's a, there's a little... A little, a little monument there, uh, so you can check it out. He, he is the woke founder. He may uh, have lost his leg jumping off a balcony to escape from the enraged husband of a woman he was sleeping with. That's a story. That is, in fact, a story. I really don't want to know what kind of monument you had in mind, Jane. Um, but I, so I think that to a certain extent, this is one of those problems that solves itself a little bit. Like, yes, monuments exist without context, but in considering which monuments should be taken down, which names should be effaced, like, you have to... That that conversation requires contextual, uh, contextualizing the people involved, requires, like, articulating a standard for who deserves to retain commemoration and who deserves to have it stripped from them. And so, you know, I think that there are plenty of pretty obvious stands you can take that prevent this from being a slippery slope. And it's just like worth pointing that out, right? Because when there were there, there is a, a little bit of, you know, conservative reaction where in 2017, they were saying, well, if you take down the Confederate monuments, next people will be coming for Washington and Jefferson because they were slaveholders. And now that there are increasingly like questions about Washington and Jefferson, they're saying, see, we told you so, you know, these people just want to efface history entirely. And without saying that it's good to draw the line before or after Washington or Jefferson or anything like that. It's obvious that you can articulate principles that say Confederate, you know, that, like defend defensible principles that say Confederate statues are bad, but we should keep George Washington or that say we should get rid of George Washington, but we shouldn't necessarily take down a Grant statue just because Ulysses S. Grant inherited, like got one slave from his in-laws and was extremely awkward about it. And like, free due to great personal cost. Um, what we often end up having in the meta debate about monuments writ large isn't actually these specific conversations. Those are conversations that are usually happening in the communities where they're talking about the specific monument. As a national conversation, it's usually kind of divorced from any particular context because it's not really about a particular monument or name. It's about do people who grew up with an understanding of American history that they could be proud of and that they could see themselves in, should that understanding be shaken because of the Americans who did not grow up seeing a history that reflected to them pride and progress and equality and who instead saw people venerated as heroes who treated them as property? But I do think we should say, right, like, there has been some real slipping of the slope uh, right. going on, right? Which is including not just like, uh, to me, like pulling down a statue of Grant on the grounds that he had inherited this slave from, from his in-laws seems a little historiographically questionable in terms of your understanding of Grant. But like also in Wisconsin, um, like the crowd just pulled down two statues of people who like one was of an abolitionist who died fighting for the union. And the other was, I think, just an abstract symbol of progress. Like, you know, it, it was just like, you know, it's like I, 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 you can see what's going on. Right. It's like people start tearing down statues for specific political reasons. And the next thing you know, people are tearing down statues because it's just like the in thing to do. Right. I think that there's a moment here where like 
I will go down fighting on my belief that sometimes people are just tearing down stuff because it seems cool to tear down stuff. There wasn't like a history PhD there being like, okay, everybody. Yes, Ulysses S. Grant was key to storming Atlanta, but he owned a slave. Like, there are a lot of people who are really mad about stuff. And sometimes when you're mad about stuff, tearing stuff down seems cool and awesome. And then later you get, in my view, kind of a backfilling. But like at a certain point, like I'm not sure how much cogent thought is going into this. Right. I mean, I, it's definitely worth distinguishing between the institutional changes, the like Mississippi legislature voting to finally remove the, you know, Confederate like symbolism from its flag, the official processes that are happening that are going to be much harder to reverse than just tearing down a statue and that are happening in the context of like a long time and a long process of political debate and changing minds and that sort of thing. And just statues that are being taken down, which can be put up again, right? Like, that's going to be a calculation of how much money do you as a local government want to spend defending this thing that you never really, that you maybe never really cared about to begin with, or that you do find vaguely embarrassing, but not quite embarrassing enough to, like, take the initiative to take down on your own. But it's, they are two different processes. And to, you know, there are definitely cases in which protests broadly, whether they're, like, directly taking statues down or the projections on statues that, you know, there, that we've seen a lot of like creative iterations of over the last few weeks where to kind of highlight that the statue, that the, that the monument needs to be taken down. You're just broadcasting facts about slavery and like images that recenter, you know, the Black American experience on top of the thing that you want to want to take down. Like those obviously have a very important role to play in pushing not not just pushing the Overton window even primarily, but in pushing politicians who might otherwise tepidly support you to actually make this a priority. I think that it's worth treating that seriously as a process and not just reducing it to like, yes, people get excited and tear stuff down. I think that we do learn some things from the cases in which there's sustained activism around something that wouldn't have necessarily been identified as a target. Like the statue of link the of lincoln in lincoln park in dc that has uh, attracted a certain amount of you know has attracted some sustained protest it's like there's one thread of the argument that is abraham lincoln wasn't himself and you know an abolitionist primarily he was a unionist and therefore he doesn't deserve to be like treated as an abolitionist hero but then there's an argument that's just about the depiction on that statue which is basically like the grateful slave kneeling to washington or sorry kneeling to lincoln and you know submitting himself in gratitude it's it's not i think that you can have a conversation about should we be honoring abraham lincoln uh that is separate from is this particular statue right. a good look similar conversation happening with like the teddy roosevelt monument that where he's being flanked by an extremely stereotypical black American and extremely stereotypical native American. Like it is true that even monuments that are created by white Americans for white Americans, that even if they're nominally celebrating progress toward equality might be doing it in a patronizing way. Right. And it's interesting because um, Frederick Douglass spoke at the dedication of that statue to which Dara is speaking. But even during the speech, what he's doing, and I, this is why I think that Frederick Douglass is one of the most important figures in American history, because he is writing and speaking with the understanding that he does not need to make the case for the statue to black people. He says in his speech that this statue is so that white people can't claim black people are ungrateful. So they literally put up this statue to be like, see, see, like, we're very grateful for the end of slavery. Now, if you could like, end the mass lynchings and Jim Crow policies. That would be cool. But like, don't say that we were not grateful to Abraham Lincoln for helping to free us. So there are not a lot of statues of Woodrow Wilson around per se, um, but there was a lot of stuff named after him. And now um, the school at Princeton is not going to be named after him. Uh, there is talk about changing the name of the high school in Washington, D.C. that's named after him. And Wilson is an interesting case here. I think 
not, I think because unlike some of these other things, we're not really disagreeing about commemoration and like what should be the norms around naming things. It is a genuine reevaluation of Woodrow Wilson, right? With Thomas Jefferson, Leaving the statues aside, I think like everybody agrees that the Declaration of Independence was a big deal and also that slavery was bad. And we're just sort of talking about how to weigh them. Um, Wilson, until very recently, was considered a great American president, not just by some people, but specifically by progressive Americans that the sort of standard, um, you know, you read like Arthur Schlesinger's books written during the Kennedy administration from a progressive point of view, draw a line. And it's a, it's a real line. Like this is not fraudulent historiography between Wilson's administration, FDR's administration, Kennedy's administration, LBJ, and like the Civil Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and and all that stuff, right? Like that is a real thread in history that exists from the League of Nations to the United Nations to today people are saying Guantanamo Bay is a crime against humanity, right? Like that's a real thread. Um, Labor unions, the idea of a regulatory state, right? And the case against Wilson, you would traditionally find, like, even just, like, when I was younger, was a sort of trolling libertarian thing. To be like, ha, 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 all you lefties don't recognize that, like, your God Wilson is this huge <laughs> racist. That goes to this understanding, it's, it's been, this is a side note, but the degree of commitment that some people on the right think that liberals have to Woodrow Wilson or to uh, Robert Byrd in West Virginia, they're like, well, what about, I'm like, I don't care. Right. Like, yeah, I just I, don't. I'm not sure how much of that is a genuine gotcha and how much of it is just a continued like rhetorical effort to conflate liberal and Democrat and therefore to like reassure conservatives that, you know, because the Republican Party institutionally started as a free soil party, that they themselves are not responsible for what that, that, you know, that they that they cannot be the party of white supremacy in 21st century America. I don't think that it's I it does not strike me as one of those things that's actually supposed to like get anybody's goat so much as just, you know, distance themselves from any accusations of, you know, uh, racist bones, if you will. But I think that they are also trying to make a real point, which is that the, and again, it's, it's relevant here that Wilson isn't just a quote unquote person of his time, right? Wilson was understood at the time he was president as part of a successful white backlash to the minimal remaining elements of the first civil rights era. That like the Wilson administration imposed more rigorous forms of segregation on federal employees and on Washington, D.C. He was the governor of New Jersey, but he was from the South personally. And he was the first Southern born president uh, since the Civil War, right? It was Wilson's administration was seen by the white South as redemption cornerstone. And like there were Southerners celebrating in Washington, D.C., singing Dixie. Like it was a whole thing. And he famously, I'm going to say blurbed, which is not quite the right word, but like blurbed Birth of the Nation. Right. Like it was a, it was a real thing. But this was genuinely connected to the sort of intellectual and political origins of some of the progressive movement, right? Had like deep ties with eugenics and other kinds of things like that. And I I think it's weird for like libertarian-minded people to talk about this stuff and then kind of yada yada past Barry Goldwater in the 1964 campaign. But they are raising, I think, a, a valid point that the deep history of a lot of sort of statist gestures in the United States, whether that's um, residential zoning or minimum wage laws, was connected to policies of racial exclusion, like in a non-incidental way, right? That like, there's a real reason 
that Woodrow Wilson was seen by New Deal historiographers as their forebearer and also a real reason why Southern white supremacists saw Woodrow Wilson as their champion. And like, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, it's, it's in some of it like doesn't matter because it's a hundred years ago, but it's like a tough intellectual uh, bullet to bite, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting also because as you said that, Wilson is a part of this backlash to the first civil rights movement. And he is such at he is such at an intellectual level. This is not the, you know, he's not a Klansman of the 1860s and 1870s with this tie to guerrilla warfare actually committed during the Civil War. He intellectualizes his own racism. He resegregates the federal civil service by forcing, by having everyone who applies for a job within the federal government, which had been, especially in D.C., a predominantly black city, a place where black Americans could seek employment. So in uh, under Wilson, you have to submit a photograph with your application so that they can tell your racial background. You know, he meets with civil rights luminaries and essentially concerns tro- concern trolls them and tells them basically, well, you know, this is this is all for the best for you. You know, we really don't want to go too far with anything. And this this will actually be most helpful for you and for real black Americans. And he, you know, he helped to help the House of Representatives reban mixed race marriage in the District of Columbia. His racism was so connected, as Matt said, not to this con- to the notion of a reformed confederacy, but to a scientific racism that was part of the eugenicist movement of the progressive er- of era of the 1910s and 1920s. And I mean, there's also his entire dealings with the First World War in which he throws political opponents and anti-war activists into prison and the League of Nations was a big fat failure. But yes, I think that the, pr- the issue with Wilson, I think, for some people is that he's closer to us, if not in time, politically than we'd like to admit. He is, you know, and I think that that's that goes to show he's he's on the, you know, the Wilson Center in Washington or um, the Wilson School at Princeton. All of this is because of these specific actions in which Wilson talks about, you know, a global community and reshaping the world after the First World War. But that is also part of reshaping the world in the spirit of scientific racism. Yeah, I, I think that the how hard this bullet is to bite is both a generational thing and, you know, just a function of how invested you are in having a usable history. Like, I don't think it's a surprise to, you know anyone our age or younger that like the progressives were racist as hell like if you have learned or been taught history recently that's something that you've kind of osmoized and so the intellectual heritage that kind of venerates those figures may have already come to you problematized and so it might be less painful to just like excise entirely there's also the fact that like to a lot of people History isn't a usable intellectual heritage. History is a bunch of names on things and they are in the past and therefore it's not that difficult to change them one way or the other. That doesn't necessarily have a lot of impact on daily life, which is going back to the beginning of this episode, like why it's not necessarily the most meaningful stance you can take against white supremacy. But it also does mean that like a lot of the people who are pushing for these changes never had an understanding in which Woodrow Wilson was a hero. And like, at that point, the argument isn't like, should we do this thing that is going to force us to reconsider some of our own assumptions, but rather should people who think that they are fully divorced from the, you know, like racism of the progressive era and who therefore are pushing to the kinds of uh, pushing for the kinds of changes like getting Woodrow Wilson's name off things, in fact, do a little bit more dig- digging and think more about the ways in which they remain connected to Wilson's legacy and not just assume that it's like easy to build a usable history that doesn't center people who believe that, you know, blacks were systematically like the black people were systematically inferior and should therefore be systematically excluded this does kind of get me into the like oh you know taking down monuments is like forgetting history and i don't think that's true i think people tend to like build their own meanings out of the monuments that 
exist, you know, kind of regardless or just not pay attention to them. But I do think that just having come to something, understanding that it was already problematic doesn't necessarily give you a pass on thinking about how uh, in in thinking about the genealogy of that. This is also where to, to, to what you were just saying, right? The fact that these are not statues of Woodrow Wilson, but actually institutions yeah. that have functions and, and role in society is where I start to worry that we have people doing too much symbolic work, right? So like in DC, um, we have a number of different public high schools. Each public high school has a geographical zone that feeds into it. Um, I believe all of the high schools are named after uh, figures from African-American history, uh, with the exception of Woodrow Wilson High School, which not coincidentally is the whitest high school. And it is located geographically in the whitest part of Washington, D.C., which also not coincidentally is the part of Washington, D.C. where the houses are most expensive, uh, which also also not coincidentally is the place where the least new construction of houses has happened. Happened. And there's a lot of talk in Washington all the time about, quote unquote, gentrification and what it means. And that talk is all focused on the neighborhoods where the three of us live, right, which are neighborhoods that are in the in the border regions and where new building has been allowed. So there's a question of what is its impact, but where the schools feed into Woodrow Wilson uh, nothing new is built. Nothing new is allowed to be built. Um, and people move there. I, I bet you guys don't know a lot of people who live in, in the Woodrow Wilson feeder zone. Uh, but if you have a five-year-old, you will come to know lots of people <laughs> who move out there quite deliberately. And these are very woke, very progressive people who, with all sincerity, would not tell you, I am going to accept a longer commute and spend more money and have less access to good restaurants because I don't want my kids to go to a majority black high school. Um, Cause that's not what they want. They just want their kids to go to a good high school, but that is the best high school in the city by all accounts. Uh, the Alice Deal middle school doesn't have a problematic name, but it is the exact same phenomenon. Right. And so if you are a, parent at a school like that and you find yourself taking the time to be in a conversation about its name and structural racism and things like that like if you just don't care like fine but the premise of the conversation about the name is that you do care right and then you really have to ask yourself like what am i doing yeah, are, are you challenging residential segregation and r systemic racism, or are you just trying to rename a school? Like, and I think that that's that's what gets to me about this debate, which I think in some ways is one that we in, in a in a better world, a less fallen world, we could be having in a larger context, talking about the you know how racism has embedded itself into all of our institutions, but instead it seems to be that like, okay, we could either talk about residential segregation, we could talk about police brutality and the simultaneous over and under policing of communities of color, or we can talk about whether or not Teddy Roosevelt didn't like black people. And it feels as if we've made a choice. And even the people who consider themselves, as you said, the most woke, who are like, we got to change the names of these high, this high school, but we should not change anything about anything else about this high school. And, you know, I think that that's, that's something that you see in many circles where these conversations when you can have a conversation about race that then suddenly turns into a conversation about like in about sin and redemption and the innermost actions of the human heart and how to judge whether or not someone is behaving in a racist way or anti-racist way or how how racism is ascribed to others that is a conversation that one is helpful and never ending and very profitable for some people, but it's a conversation that does markedly little to change the outcomes uh, for non-white Americans and black Americans specifically, because those actions would be really hard and really challenging to, you know, where do your kids go to school? Who do your kids go to school with? What are the schools that your kids go to look like? 
that's hard. Changing names is easy. So, I mean, I agree with all of that to a certain extent, but I do find myself a little bit wary of trying, you know, kind of like concern trolling what organizers are spending their activism energy on. But also, because so much of this seems to me like where the groundwork has already been laid, like putting into a new phase conversations that were already happening around monuments, putting into a new phase conversations that were kicked off uh, in, I think, elite white white circles by like the publication of the 1619 project and have been simmering under the surface since then about like the, you know, considered and continued legacy in American history of slavery and anti-Black racism. Because these things are already kind of some of the groundwork had already been laid, they're the easiest because they're the quickest. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they preclude more sustained engagement down the road, right? It's it's if you are thinking about this as like, okay, what are some easy wins that we can secure for people who are new to anti-racist work? It wouldn't surprise me if you actually came up with, yes, let's do some organizing around taking names of racists off institutions so that we can both teach people a little history and help them feel like they're contributing in a small and meaningful way to a better world. I think that it's obviously you can't just kick it back and say that you've done your part by like getting a statue taken down or getting a name off something. But I also don't think that anyone, no one ever says to themselves that they're doing that. It's a question of when you, when this stops being the most important thing that you're dealing with as a kind of engaged citizen of your community. And that doesn't strike me. I'm not, I think that, there are plenty of examples of, okay, we got the win, we're moving on. But there are also plenty of examples of, we gave this up because it was hard and we didn't have any wins and we're only human and we're not even professional. Like, we're, you know, we're, we're not, we're not being paid to care. And so other things in our lives have to at some point take precedence and we have to, you know, find some way to like get through our days without just feeling ground down by everything. I, there was, you know, a lot of conversation on social media about like white burnout and whether that was a legitimate thing for white people you know who were more engaged in anti-racism than they had previously been to be feeling and i think it's just a general human truth that burnout is inevitable when you are giving a ton of energy to something and don't have the infrastructure to continue producing that energy and aren't getting feedback. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's the most important thing for a movement to be considering. Sometimes you just have to tell people to like sit it out for 15 minutes and come back when you're ready. But I'm not at all convinced that the work of building the sort of movement that is still going to care about anti-racism, even when, you know, something else displaces, like even even when the next presidential scandal blows up, it doesn't start with these kind of easy wins. Take a break. Talk about a white paper. Sounds good. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, we've got today Winners and Losers, the Effect of Gaining and Losing Access to Selective Colleges on Education and Labor Market Outcomes. 
that's a that's a mouthful. Um, it's by Sandy Black, Jeffrey Denning, and Jesse Rothstein. And so it looks specifically at a policy that Texas implemented. Um, Texas was one of the first states to move to a sort of ban on affirmative action in its um, state higher education system. And a little bit curiously for such a conservative state, actually moved to sort of do something about it as a, as a compensatory measure. And they adopted this policy that the top 10% of graduates of all Texas high schools uh, would sort of gain admission to UT. Over the years, they've had to modify this policy. I think it's down to top 6% now uh, because you know only so many people fit. And that's a, actually a good conversation for another day. Um, but so this paper looks at what happens, and it's really interesting because it shows that the people who benefited from this policy, which is to say students, highly ranked students at traditionally weaker high schools um, who sent more kids to UT than they had been before, that those kids benefited quite a lot. Uh, they had higher college graduation rates, and as you might expect from that, higher earnings. Uh, so there was no like mismatch phenomenon. Kids didn't get in like in above their heads. Uh, but so the question is, is, well, did you just spread the good luck around? So they look at the kids who were squeezed out of UT, um, kids who were less highly ranked but came from top high schools. And so what happened to them? And well, they went to less selective colleges on average, but their graduation rate stayed steady, right? They didn't not enroll and they didn't drop out. Uh, and their earnings also stayed steady. So they didn't just sort of rearrange who gets access to UT. They genuinely grew the pie here. That by give, they gave access to elite schools to students who didn't have it before, and they benefited from that. But that sending the sort of more privileged kids to less selective schools, they did fine. Um, and they can't tell you why, but you can sort of draw an image in your head, right? Of like a kid on the margin who benefits a lot from the stronger support system at a, at a better funded school versus a kid who has the kind of parents who bothered to move them into the top school district in the first place. He goes to just like a different college and, you know, does his work there, graduates, and like, it's all fine, whereas somebody from an immigrant background or poor background might not have succeeded in, in that context. I don't know, it just, it's, it's like a, seems like a happy story. Other, other states should do this. My theory of, of the case is a little bit less about support structures uh, than it is about signaling. I mean, I, it really struck me looking at, you know, their findings about the people who were in the push, pulled in and pushed out classes. They're saying it's not that these kids were taking, you know, it's not that these kids didn't have stellar resumes academically, uh, but that's because they were from disadvantaged backgrounds. They were actually taking more AP classes and had higher test scores than the students who were, you know, in the lower deciles of more prestigious high schools and therefore were more likely to go to UT before this policy was in place. Like that's that says to me that something that what UT is doing is essentially correcting for a, a bias toward particular high schools even if they're not the most stellar applicants from that high school. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if something similar were now happening in the college context where Someone from a disadvantaged background, like I can't, I keep thinking about the uh, the studies that show that you know ban the box policies are actually worse for the employment outcomes of black job applicants because being able to check a box saying I don't have a criminal record was a good signal for, for black applicants who didn't have criminal records that they were quote unquote one of the good ones and that in the absence of that an HR department was like liable to assume that a black applicant was a problem like that's obviously not good but kind of the inverse of that might well be happening here we're having the you know the kids from more privileged backgrounds don't need the added credential to reassure potential employers that they're like going to be okay. Whereas the kids from less advantaged backgrounds having that UT Austin diploma is a signal that it's okay to hire them and expect them to do great things. 
Right. And I think that that's one of the, the, we hear a lot sometimes about people yelling about the Ivy Leagues and talking about, you know, I, and talking about how angry they are about them. But many of those people who hold positions of power went to Ivy League schools because much of how we think in this country about elite universities, and to be clear, most people do not attend four-year universities at all. Many people attend community colleges or experience college over a longer period of time than what's commonly depicted. But so much of that experience of elite schools is an element of signaling. It is that you have this essentially a permission slip from a university that says this person's okay. And this person can now go on to you know participate fully in sociocultural life. And so I think that that is such an important element of this story, because I know that for me, attending the University of Michigan uh, was an extremely important decision I made not just because of where I got to go to school and write about Nazis, but because of what that signaled through. It has continued to signal for the rest of my life. And I remember when I was applying to Michigan, I had some bad math grades. And so um, they, you know, the University of Michigan talked to my college counselor and were just like, we're about to go to committees to decide whether or not Jane is accepted, which even now I'm like, you guys had like thousands of kids in this class. So I don't understand why this needed so much discussion. But the decision was made that I should be allowed to go to the University of Michigan, despite being somewhat bad at math in the past. And that decision has been the springboard for the rest of my life and for the lives of these kids who were able to attend the University of Texas at Austin, which isn't just about the experience of going to school at Austin, but also about the permission slip that it indicates to employers and to peers alike. You know, the the conversations that that gets you into. And whether or not those conversations should be reliant on where you went to school, that's a separate issue. I don't think they should be. I think that that is a a, a a bias mechanism that we don't talk enough about, but it still has proven markedly effective. I do want to caution a little bit just methodologically, like it is important to note that this study, which you would think really hinges on looking at the class ranks of people of of applicants and therefore assessing whether they, you know, made the cutoff or would have, you know, if someone who applied before the top 10 percent policy was put in place would have made the cutoff if they'd applied after the top 10 percent policy was put in place like the authors acknowledge that they do not actually have this data because data on class rank was not system- systematically gathered. Uh, and so instead, they're using, you know, they're essentially using machine learning to predict with a very high degree of confidence what applicants would have, what applicants' class ranks would have been, and to generate these like very plausible scenarios of, okay, this is a group that wouldn't have been as likely to attend under the previous uh, under the previous regime and this is a high achieving group that would have probably gotten in under, under the previous regime. So to the extent that there is some disagreement in the literature about things like mismatch or about the benefits of, you know, mar- for marginal students attending elite schools, it, this may not be the end of the story. It's just a very useful like it's 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 certainly it's certainly like good for everybody if true and a useful reminder that not everything in life is zero sum but i so one thing that that i do think is worth paying attention to which you know is not in the paper is the story of top 10 percent's evolution to top nine top seven top yeah. six right which is a consequence of there's been a lot of population growth in texas um this program has been i think well regarded by like people in in texas they they have liked it it's been a stable political equilibrium uh but the ut austin campus has not grown commensurately right and and one thing you see is that like so it's not as zero-sum as it may have appeared to be the sort of admissions game but there is a zero-sum aspect to the admissions themselves but admissions to america's best colleges appears to be a genuine social good uh for some people at some margin right like we have these other studies that show that like 
typical people seem to not benefit. The, the typical people who actually do go to Ivy League schools don't necessarily benefit from that, but the small number of low-income and minority people who go do benefit because they, I think, make useful connections. Um, so, like, expanding these schools, right, which they've mostly become more and more selective over time. That that Texas trajectory from 10 to 6 is a little extreme because Texas has had a lot of population growth, but it's quite typical, right? And it seems to suggest that there are real gains that could be made by expanding the most in-demand kind of schools and widening the circle of people who are able to get into them. Because if you make this kind of top 10 switch, which seems good, and I, I would recommend that, that states do, but then it degenerates into eventually becoming a top one system, like that doesn't really help people in the way it was intended to help people, right? Because part of what this was supposed to do is make a more diverse campus. Part of what it's supposed to do is like help more marginal people. But part of what it's supposed to do is like calm down the like public school allocation wars, right? And say that like, look, like if you go to school, like if you if you go to class and you do your homework and, and you work hard and you try to do a good job, like it'll be fine. You don't need to spend your whole life panicking over which schools your children are assigned to, uh, which there will be a lot of benefits to that socially, right? Um, but it only works if you can actually maintain some kind of stability around that. Otherwise, it pushes from a competition to be in the top 10% to a competition to be in the top 1% are like very, those are very different things, right? And like just creating scarcity of these slots is, is bad over and above the question of how do we allocate them? And we can name all the schools after Woodrow Wilson if that somehow <laughs> makes it the, more palatable. The Woodrow's Wilson. Yes. Um, okay. And wrap right. it up here. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks to uh, Woodrow Wilson for uh, inspiring Being so trash. Many, so many Being big thoughts. trash. Okay. <laughs> uh, so thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.